it matters what you believe, and it matters that what you believe is also true, right? It's not very helpful to believe things that aren't true. There was, uh, years ago, there was a, a little, I guess you'd call it a distribution center um, store. Remember Whitmark's store in uh, Rogers Plaza? And um, it was Christmas season, and I went to buy Tammy uh, a gift, and I'm, I'm at the Whitmark, and you know, that's sort of a jewelry counter kind of thing, and I'm looking at different things, and one of the customer service persons came up to me and, and asked what I was you know, looking for, whatever, and, and this is always an interesting opportunity for a man to demonstrate to the, the lady customer service representative that I know what I'm doing, you know, I'm, I'm picking out a gift for my wife, and so I'm pretty good at this. And so I said, yeah, I'm looking for a ring. And, you know, and so then we go, and I, I, can I see that would ring over there? And she tries to offer me other options. But I like this particular one. It's a, a gold band, not silver. And it's got um, two white stones and then a red stone and then two more red, white ones, if I recall correctly. It was a combination of red and white stones. And it was a, there was another option that was a little pricey, maybe $180 and nothing. This one was 120. I was more in my price range at that time. You know, this is a long time ago, and so I, so I picked it out. And I'm, I'm really quite proud of myself. And I'm thinking she must have to deal with these lame guys who don't know what they're doing, can't make a decision. You know, and, and I'm assertive, and I didn't buy too much, and I got the exact right ring, and I got the right size. I'm sure I, I I'm walking out of there. Man, is Tammy? blessed or what that you know I am know what I'm doing here it's not even Christmas Eve you know I'm like I'm ahead of schedule and uh, I wrap it up nice and all that stuff and I'm excited and and so you know the kids are in bed we always opened our presents to each other on Christmas Eve rather than waiting for the kids on Christmas morning and and so she's opening the present and and her response is not exactly as enthusiastic as I thought it might be. I, I was expecting, you know, that, that advertisement, you know, that every kiss begins with type, you know, the perfect moment. And she, she opened it and looked at it, and then she raised her hand and showed me that I had bought the exact same ring the year before <laughs> and gone through all the same thought process, I'm sure. And had no idea that she, I duplicated it perfectly, which proves a lot of things about me. I don't want to list them all. But the point is, is what I believed about myself wasn't exactly true, right? I, was, I maybe could pick it out, but I didn't even remember what I'd done. It matters whether or not you what you believe is actually true. Somebody's got a cool device in here. Are you taking pictures? Is that that? Who's beeping? It doesn't bother me. Um, I just don't want you all to be distracted. So we're in the book of Corinthians, and we're working our way through, and Corinth has a lot of issues and one of the issues that they had, amazingly, of this church that was so spiritual and so full of spiritual gifts and so oriented towards um, trying to help other people and all this stuff, 
they had this ironic problem is that some of them had accepted Christianity and yet at the same time did not believe that the resurrection of the dead was true. And so for them, it didn't matter whether what you believed was true or not, it just mattered that you believed it. And that there was some sort of benefit for uh, them as a person now to have this religious experience or this religious position, even though they know full well that it was based on a hoax or based on fantasy and it wasn't really true. And so Paul has to address this for sure, right? Because one of the interesting things about Christianity is it is actually a religion that believes that it's also the truth. It isn't based on just made-up stories or myths. It's not supposed to just make us feel enthusiastic. It's not a a rah-rah pep-up story. It's actually also a true story. And so that's an important thing. So let's watch what what Paul does here as he begins to address this issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. You remember that the word gospel is good news in the Greek, and we could have actually translated I wanted to remind you of the good news, but we've made it into a word, gospel, in English. And I preached to you, um, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. So you received this gospel as, as what it was, and you took your stand on it. You're living, you're basing your life on this gospel. And by this gospel, you are saved. This is how you're rescued from death. This is how you're rescued from God's wrath. You're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. So it's possible to believe something that's not true, and that belief would be in vain, wouldn't it? For what I received, and Paul's going to establish here, what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, and even that resurrection was according to the scriptures, the sign of Jonah and other things in the Old Testament that pointed towards the resurrection. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's the other name for um, Peter, right? And so he appeared to Peter and then to the 12, so the 12 uh, disciples. And then after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Well, that must have been something, wasn't it? And then um, to most of those who are still living, though some have fallen asleep, and so we see Paul's reference here. For Paul, who's so persuaded that the resurrection is true, that for him, death isn't dying, it's falling asleep because you get to wake up again. And so, uh, so many of those brothers and sisters are still living, but some of them have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, that would probably be Jesus's brother, James, the one who was the head of the church and the one who wrote the book of James. And then to all the apostles again, so another time. And last of all, he appeared to me, that's Paul, as one abnormally born. And so what Paul is trying to say here is that that all of the other apostles, all the other people who had this appearance, those appearances of Jesus happened before he ascended and went up to heaven. And Paul didn't see Jesus with his own eyes until, until much later 
when he was on the road to Damascus and the light shone around him and Paul says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, it is me, Jesus, whom you're persecuting. So Paul views his own view of apostleship as being sort of abnormally born. He's born at a different time. That's a battery problem, or I didn't wiggle that much. So far, I am the least of all the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul was a persecutor. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than them, all of them. So Paul's pointing out here that he was a persecutor, but God's grace changed his life. And in a lot of ways, he worked harder than all the other apostles, but not because he was so great, right? But the grace of God that was with him. So the grace enabled him to do that. And so then he says, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preached, and this is what you believe. You believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Okay. So I wanted to step back and say, well, what is it that we need to understand? And this material, this outline is not my own for sure. This is from the ancients. We've had this around for many, many centuries. How does a person really get in relationship with God? What does it mean to believe? And, you know, we have, um, you maybe have heard, I've heard secular culture say, oh, he had his Jesus, his coming to Jesus moment, right? Or, yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus now. And they don't even know what they're talking about. And a person who just says to you, yeah, I had a Jesus moment, you wonder, do they even understand? So what is it, what's necessary for us to actually be a believer in Jesus? What is this gospel? What is it we need to know? And so the outline today is pretty simple. The first thing is we need to know the claims of Christianity, of Jesus. What are, what are the facts? I can't really believe one thing or another unless I actually have the claims. What are the claims? And we learned, <coughs> excuse me, we learned in our um, Good Soil Evangelism training class last year that there are eight essential truths that you've got to kind of have a little bit of a working handle on in order to understand Jesus. You can't come to Jesus without at least some fairly clear understanding of these eight essential claims. So let me review those with us a moment. This could take all day if we wanted to, but I'm going to try to briefly go over these eight claims. So the first one is, that there is God, right? That God is eternal, that he's the one true God. He's not a force. He's, a, he's a, a being with three persons in one being, one essence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that they are in fellowship with one another, and that God is uncreated. He did not get made. He didn't come about as a result of the Big Bang. He was before the Big Bang, right? He caused everything else. Nobody created him. There is no rule that says someday there will be a God and God will be like this. No, God existed before there was any such rule because there never was. He sets his own rules. He's self-existent and he decides everything. And he is what he is because he is what he is, not because anything else pressured him to be that way. Okay, so he's in charge and he's the creator. The next thing you need to understand is that human beings are different than the other creatures of the creation. So we are created in God's image. Not even angels are created in God's image. 
We are created in God's image. We have the ability, like angels, we can participate in language and symbols. And like angels, we can probably, I think they can appreciate beauty. They seem to be able to, to say things that are beautiful and see beautiful things. But a, a dog doesn't really see beauty. You couldn't, um, the dog doesn't just sigh and look out at the sunset and say, isn't that a beautiful sunset? Or they don't look at the painting of Picasso and say, wow, what a wonder, wonderful combination of colors and shapes. That an animal doesn't think that way. If they do, you're thinking for them, right? You're, 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 you're pushing into their head what you think they're thinking because they're not saying, what a beautiful sunset. They might sigh, but I don't think it has anything to do with the sunset. So human beings can appreciate beauty. We have language. But most importantly, we can respond to God in a deep and close relationship. And we can rebel against God. We have a moral capacity. We have the ability to choose yes or no. And so those things make us very, very special. That's what makes us like God. Other creatures are not like that. And so um, God is the one true God, and we are created in his image. So you need to understand those things. And then thirdly, you need to understand what sin is. When God made Adam and Eve, they were in perfect relationship with him. God gave them one command, do not eat from this certain tree. They had everything they needed. And they said, well, we want our own way. And so they chose, they somehow were persuaded. Satan tempted them. Um, Eve was deceived, but Adam just chose outright that they wanted to decide for themselves. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to know good and evil. They sort of... You want to give me more juice, maybe? It restarted. I think uh, when uh, my computer messes up, I just reboot it sometimes. So maybe I need to be rebooted. So That's red. How does that sound? Is it a lot better than it was? I think I'm okay now. Oh, wow. Mickey Mouse came to church. <clears throat> so, um, that woke you up. <gasps> they decided to be autonomous, to make their own rule. They didn't want to obey God anymore, and they disobeyed God, and because of that, God had to judge. God is holy, right? And he cannot have that kind of sin in his presence. And he cannot expose himself to that kind of rebellion. And so he cast them out of the garden. So even though we were created in God's image, and it was a really wonderful thing, as God's image bearers, we rebelled against God and we produced conflict and war and God became our enemy instead of our intimate master. And so sin came into the world. This is a big problem. And guess what happened? Death started. You need to understand where death comes from. And death comes as a consequence of sin. The wages of sin is death. It's the just payment. It's what is due when this happens. When, you, when I sin, we deserve death. And it's the necessary consequence of our rebellious action. And so Adam and Eve died right away. Their body began to decay. And they were spiritually separated from God. Death is separation. 
When my body dies, my spirit is separated from my body. And when we died spiritually, our spirits were separated from God. We were not in communion. We, we were, every part of us was impacted by that sin. And our bodies began to die. And death came into the world. The whole creation, the Bible says, is groaning under this curse. There was not animal predation, predatory stuff before this happened. And now there's predation and all of the killing and dying and all of the disease and disasters and storms and, and the terrible things and, and, and children who born with severe handicaps and evil men and women who hurt people, all those things came. And death is the end game. Death is the consequence. We need to understand that. But God loves Adam and Eve. And he loves humanity, and so he sets about a plan, and he prepares a people to bring about a seed that Eve is going to have a child someday, or a descendant of Eve is going to come, and that descendant of Eve is going to make a difference. And so God promises to do that, and he does through the family of Abraham. He promises all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And then under one of Abraham's ultimate descendants, King David was a king, and he was promised, underneath you will come one who will rule and reign forever and ever, this descendant. So we get a more and more clear picture. He's going to be a seed of the woman. It's going to be a descendant of Abraham. It's going to be a descendant of David. And then that angel comes and visits Mary and said, you're highly favored because it's going to be your son, and you're going to give him the name Jesus. And so the, the next essential truth is that Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, comes. And so God is going to redeem his creation and he sends Jesus on the earth and Jesus begins to do the work that God sent him to do. One of the most amazing things to me about Jesus' work is right away early in his ministry, after he's baptized by John the Baptist, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tested by Satan. And he goes into the desert or wilderness and for 40 days and in 40 nights, he has no food. He's starving. And he's very, very hungry. And he's starving to death, actually. And he is approached by Satan and said, if you're the son of God, if that's who you are, then do this. Fix the problem. You're dying here. Fix the problem yourself. Take charge. And you turn those stones into bread. You need it. You know it's necessary. It's going to be the right thing. Compare it to Eve and Adam. They were sitting in the garden. They're, they're surrounded by all the bounty. They're not even probably hungry from breakfast, right? They, they have everything they ever would need. There's no lack. There's no inefficiency or uh, insufficiency. They have everything they need. Satan doesn't even, she's not even hungry. And Satan tempts her to do the wrong thing. And here Jesus is starving to death in the desert. And there's nothing for him. And if he dies, the whole mission is ruined. And it looks like he's on the edge of death. And, and he's got to take matters into his own hand. He's got to fix the problem. And he says, no. Man does not live by bread alone. I am not going to live based on my perception of my need. I'm not going to address my starving by myself. But by every word that comes from God, I'm going to submit to the Father. And if God wants me to starve to death, I'm going to starve to death. He's the one who knows what's right. I will not be autonomous. Isn't that something? 
Jesus did not choose to do his own way. He lives a perfectly righteous life and fulfills all holiness. And so now what he can do is he can go up on the cross and he can die as a perfect lamb of God, as a substitute for you and I. He can go on the cross and bear all of the wrath of God's punishment on the cross and become a complete sin payment, an atonement payment for my sins. He can substitute for me because he's worthy. If he had one flaw, if he had ever sinned, if he had ever been autonomous even once, then his sacrifice would not be perfect. But it had to be perfect, and he was perfect, and he did so as the great God-man. And so Jesus dies on the cross for my sin. I want to just point out something here that you, so you understand the gravity of this work. We've been talking in um, different groups about the, the hour of our death, and we're talking about the Psalm 23, how the, um, with the yea, though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me, your rod and your staff comfort me, Psalm 23. Isn't that awesome? That you and I, if we believe in Jesus, when we face the hour of our death, we know that we won't go through that valley alone that Jesus will go with us and he'll give us the grace that we need to endure that time. We'll be afraid perhaps and we might be in great pain and suffering, but we will not be alone. We will not be abandoned in that hour. We will be held. And I've seen it with my own eyes how God has helped a believer across that Jordan River and God is faithful in those days. Amen? But Jesus on the night before he died, the night he was betrayed, was in the garden, and he said, Father, please let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way, please let this cup pass from me, but not my will, yours be done. And so he submitted to Father, but he begged and prayed to not have to drink the cup, the cup of God's wrath. Do you think that Jesus was just afraid of dying? No. He knew that the cup of God's wrath was the cup of God's wrath, and he was going to go alone. You see, before Psalm 23 is Psalm 22, and Jesus knew that psalm real well. And one of the phrases in Psalm 22 is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so Jesus goes on the cross, and he knew this was coming. He knew the scriptures, and he knew who he had to be. He had to die for my sin. And so on the cross, the scripture says that he became sin for us and he took on all of my shameful behaviors and attitudes and selfishness and his naked body had to hang on the tree to be my punishment. And he went alone and he cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why? He went through hell for me. He was separated from the Father. He experienced all of God's wrath and There was no rod to comfort him. He experienced our terrible torture on the cross so that we would never have to. And so that's what Jesus does. His work is amazing. And so Jesus dies on the cross. And after those three hours on the cross of darkness, he he raises his voice and says, it's finished. And he gave up his spirit and died. And his suffering was over. And he was with God, and God was with him again. And so the cross is a major thing we need to understand. 
And then the next thing we underneath is saying, okay, I know who God is now, and I know that I'm creating his image, and I know that I'm a sinner, and that's why I have to die, but I know that God sent Jesus Christ as my substitute, and he died on the cross for me. And so how do I benefit from that? How do I get the benefit of Jesus' death? It's not everybody who gets the benefit as much as we'd want it to be true. It's not true. Jesus says, broad is the way and, and easy is the road, and many people are on it that goes to destruction. Not everybody gets saved, but narrow is the way and difficult is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And how do you and I find it? It's by faith. We trust what God says. And so that's an important thing. And then if we trust it, what does the Bible say? Those who believe in him shall have eternal life, right? And so those are the eight essential truths that I think a person needs to understand. Those are the claims of the gospel that you need to understand, that I need to understand in order to come to Jesus, right? In order to have our Jesus moment, in order to be saved. If you don't know who God is, or you don't know what sin is, or you don't know who Jesus is, just saying, I believe in Jesus doesn't mean anything a whole lot more than, hey, I'm really good at buying jewelry. It doesn't matter, right? You, it's got to be, you got to understand what you believe. Are you with me? Okay, so that was the first thing. You got to know the claims, know the claims. Even demons know the claims and doesn't save them. So just knowing this stuff doesn't matter, right? So you also need to add to that, you need to agree in your heart, you got to come to the persuasion that the claims are also true, that there are true claims. You, you know what the claims are, but then you have to say, yeah, that's true. I mean, there's a lot of claims, right? I know that there's uh, uh, the claim that somebody wants some religions that will believe in reincarnation and that when you die, you come back again as some other creature. And, and if you live a good life, you come back as a better creature. If you live a bad life, you come back and you have to pay karma in the next life, and, and you have a, you're come back in a worse creature, right? Um, that's the claim. Then I would have to decide whether I believe it's true or not. And I would say I don't believe that's true, right? So you can choose yes or not, whether or not you want to believe the claim. Why would a person not agree that the claims of the gospel are true? Just to help us understand, why would you or I not think that the claims of the gospel are true. And I have a number of reasons, but we're going to take a little excursion here on some old PowerPoints that I did before. Christian theism, that's what the gospel is, has a worldview, and I don't know if you can read that from far away, but that's um, God, that God is uncreated. He's a separate being from the rest of us. But the rest of Christian theism is that everything else is created, which includes um, all of the animals and the plants and the rocks and all that stuff and that human beings are special. We're that other little blue box, humanity. And so this is Christian theism, and the Bible teaches that God is involved with his creation, that God's intimately involved. He created it, and he interacts with it even still today. That's what we believe. Those are the claims of the gospel. But many people in our world today believe in what's called naturalism. This is the worldview of the majority of the people we encounter, I think. And so... This is that God, the idea that God is uncreated and that the rest of creation is created, they would say, no, there's no such thing as God. That God is just something we've made up as human beings as part of our evolutionary track. We thought it would be helpful or whatever. And so we, we've made God up in our own image. We've made up the, we like religion. 
we like serving something, but there's no real evidence that there's a true God. You can never know. There's, God does not exist. And so naturalism would teach us that all of these other things are the same of essence, that there's no real difference between a human being and an animal or any other kind of animal or the, uh, ultimately a plant, that we have no more rights to live than they do. We're not more important or less important. Everything's just the way it is. And they would also draw a very strong box around it, that this is a closed system, that the universe as we know it is closed and there is nobody getting in or out. Everything that happens, happens here and only here. It's the laws of time and chance and science and the laws of just the way it works. It's physics. And that's the way most of our people in the world believe. They believe that there's no intervention. There's no, there's no God that couldn't intervene. And if he did intervene, he would not be, if there was a God, he couldn't intervene. He doesn't intervene. That's naturalism. And that's why people don't believe in the claims of Christianity, because they're a bunch of mere fairy tales, right? <coughs> Christianity is a bunch of um, pretend. It's a, it's, a, it's a myth. Are you kidding? There's no such thing as a virgin birth. You, the, how dumb do you have to be? Mary had this baby. Guess what? There was some man involved. That's the only way it happens. It can't happen any other way. And so it's a ridiculous claim. You might what's the difference between that and believing in Santa Claus? Is, this, is there anybody here that still does? I don't want to break your heart. Right? There's this guy who comes down the chimney and fills things under, you know. That's a myth. That's a silly story. So is the virgin birth, frankly. So is the resurrection from the dead. It's all a bunch of fairy tales. If this is your worldview, you have to say that, right? Because miracles don't happen. <laughs> they can't. Just as an aside here, <clears throat> if this is your point of view that all there is is a closed system, you've got a few miracles you've got to work out here too. Like where did it all come from then? What's the cause of the cause? How did it all get started? Oh, the Big Bang. What happened at T minus one before the Big Bang? What, if, if everything was in this point of singularity and there was complete stability, then what happened to cause it to go poof? What caused the explosion? That's hard enough to explain. You just got to say, well, we don't know. That's not the... That's, a, that's, an answer, that's an answer we don't answer. That's because naturalism can't answer everything. But here's another question. Where did life come from? Apparently, if you're a naturalist, you have no other options, then you basically are um, a Dr. Frankenstein experiment, right? You have a bunch of organic material in some particular place, and you strike it with lightning, and then it comes to life. But it's kind of hard because whatever that life was that gets struck by lightning that this, this uh, organic material is in a sequence that's pretty close to DNA, and then it gets hit by lightning and it starts to come alive. How does that first living thing reproduce before it dies? Because I don't know of anything that's alive that doesn't die. Even trees that last a long time still die. Even algae dies. So how did the so that means that life would have had to have started 
maybe billions of times before it ever had the chance to get to live long enough to figure out how to reproduce to have more life. How did this? Oh, you understand that naturalism has to make some big miracle leaps too, doesn't it? And it has to, even if you can come up with life, how do you come up with personhood? Why would that ever happen? If the whole world is full of algae, what would ever make the algae say, man, this is boring. Let's become something more sophisticated. Everything about the laws of nature would all argue against that, right? It would all decay and decline. It would not go up. So the point is, is that you have to suspend your naturalism beliefs in order to be a naturalist and still live in today's reality. So anyway, what is a miracle? A miracle is when God overrides the laws of nature, right? God is the one who created everything, and a miracle, um, you can say that Tammy married me is a miracle. Yeah, I know what you mean, but it's not actually God overriding the laws of nature. She might have just been easy to deceive, right? So I might have just played the cards right. I've been trying to learn how to light coffee, and the first sip is so bad. I just can't say it, but by the time I get to the end of it, maybe some of that caramel starts seeping up. It's not so bad at the end, and I realize that that is the perfect analogy of Tammy's relationship with me. Her, her Her first sip was probably really bad, but over time, she kind of got used to it and she tolerated. So that's how I, so but that's not a miracle, right? Or you could even say that a baby being born is a miracle, which is sort of true, right? Because only God could do that. But it's actually the natural laws of the universe that are at work that God created. So we understand that God's active, but, uh, but actually a birth is not miracle. What is a miracle strictly speaking, is when the laws of nature get broken by God, right? When God comes in, the one who created everything, and he does something that his nature can't do. He overrides those rules, and he breaks the rules like he raises the dead, because you can't do that in nature. A virgin conceives. You can't do that in nature. Oh, man walks on the water. You can't do that in nature. A man feeds 5,000 people with a small amount. He creates more material. He created more bread because he broke the laws of nature. He made a blind man who was born blind see. He broke the laws of nature. Why does God do that? God does miracles to prove that he is the creator. So here we are in this natural world and we're all watching what's going on and all of a sudden the creator shows up again and he does a miracle to prove that he's out there. And he does it to, um, to show that he's active in his creation. He said, I am working. And he does it to show that the one speaking on his behalf can be trusted. And so when Jesus walks on the water, when Jesus um, turns bread and feeds 5,000 people, when he makes the blind man see, he's doing that so you can show, so he can show us, you can trust me. And his enemies came to him and said, hey, give us a sign so we know we can trust you. And I want to jump in the text and say, 
How did you not laugh, Jesus? Because I've been doing signs the whole time. But they wanted a sign. He said, I'll tell you what sign I'll give you. I'll give the sign of Jonah. Three days in the depths of the earth, and he was taken back up. And they didn't understand what he was saying, but what he meant was, I will be dead for three days. He predicts in advance, I will be dead for three days and I'll raise again. And he does. And so Jesus fulfills his own prophecy. He prophesies his own miraculous resurrection and he does. And so we can be, he can be trusted. So God's miracles prove those things. So we know the claims, right? And we need to agree that the claims are true. And we need to then finally receive these implications for ourselves. You know, point one and two, like I said, the book of James says, even the demons believe. You don't have to be sophisticated to do that, but you have to do three, step three is to actually receive the implications. Since these things are true, I am a sinner and I am in condemnation under God's condemnation and wrath. I personally need to repent of my sin and receive Jesus's offer of salvation. I need to receive the gospel. I need to be saved. I need to turn away from sin. I no longer am going to be autonomous. I need to give my life to Jesus. That's what it means to be saved. And that's the point, right? I heard a guy talking a little bit while ago about a police officer who had a bulletproof vest on and he came up to a uh, uh, a person who was in a situation and the guy pulled a gun on him and he did not have, as an officer, did not have time to address his own weapon and defend himself. And he thought to himself, I know that a bulletproof vest works. I've seen it. But now I'm going to find out. Now I'm going to believe it. And he took a shot and survived, right? Because the vest worked. it. So he's one who kind of, he received the implications by that situation. It's like the guy who jumps out of an airplane. That's the guy who trusts that there's a parachute. All right, what does it mean to receive? Why would a person not receive? Well, some would say, I just can't believe the stories. It's too ridiculous. That's a possible reason. But if you do believe it's true, why would you not receive? God's offer of salvation. Why would you not want to? Because I want to be my own boss. Right? I don't want to give my life to Jesus. I don't want to turn away from my favorite sins. I like my life being my life. I think ultimately that's what it breaks down to, right? I would not want Jesus to be my master. So, finally... And this goes back to the Corinth. The claims themselves also have to be true. How sad would it be? How awful? Well, let's have Paul tell us how awful it would be. He says, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So if we, this whole gospel thing is based on the resurrection, how can you say that there is no such thing as a resurrection? Maybe these were uh, descendants of the Sadducees group who had come into the church. Maybe there are other pagans, or, but they did not believe in the miracle of the resurrection. And so Paul says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then you need to understand that not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching 
is useless, and so is your faith. Did you know that? That sometimes we get confused about faith. We think that faith is the thing itself. Where there is faith, there's a song that used to be, I can do this, I can do that. Where there is faith, it makes all the difference. The faith isn't what fixes it. I can believe I'm the best Christmas shopper ever, but that doesn't fix the problem, right? I can believe that I can fly when I jump out of the airplane, but that won't solve the problem. It's got to also be true. It has to really be true, otherwise our faith is useless. It's a foolish thing to believe. I don't care how sincere your belief is. If it's not true, it's a waste of time. More than that, if it's not only useless, we're found to be false witnesses about God, so we've been lying about what God has said, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but if he did not raise him, if the dead are not raised, if it's not possible, and he said, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. There is, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then his payment on the cross was no payment at all. We're still in our sins. There's no forgiveness. And those of us who have fallen asleep, guess what? They're lost. When you die, you're done. If there's no resurrection. And look at this. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all others. The claims must be true. Otherwise, we have no hope. But they're true. Amen? (laughs) What a blast. The angels declared the good news to Mary, to the shepherds. The angels were there at the resurrection. The truth is, Jesus did raise from the dead. And the truth is, because he did those miracles, you can trust what he says. And if you have not come and trust him before, he says, come to me if you're heavy laden. I'll give you rest. I'll give you life to the full. You may think that my burden of following my rules is hard and it's going to hurt you, but my yoke is easy. My burden is light. It's the greatest thing you could ever do. You come to Jesus and be saved. It's worth it because he can be trusted and he purchased it for you. All right? Joy to the world on that one. Let's close. Father, we thank you so much for the truth of the gospel that you have intervened in history and demonstrated who you are through your miraculous signs and wonders. And you have given us the Lord Jesus as the ultimate revelation of yourself, both with word and deed that he did these things and he can be trusted. And so, Father, we do trust you and we're so grateful that it's true. And I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has never heard the claims before and never understood them or has never realized how true they were, that today would be the day when they receive and accept the implications for themselves and they say yes to you by your grace. And we'll praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Please say in with us as we sing our closing song, Joy to the World. Amen. Well, I just hope that this is a great Christmas season for you. I know it's hard for sometimes for families. This is a special time of year when we miss lost loved ones or if there's broken relationships, those are especially painful. But God's grace is sufficient and God's gift is the Lord Jesus. 
and he gives us eternal life in him. And so be encouraged with those things. Thank you so much for coming. We'll see you um, in the cookie time. You're dismissed.